understanding of the book of John, as we journey through, we find ourselves this morning in the book of John, the third chapter, verses 6 through 15. So I ask that you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by just giving me a hearty hallelujah. Hallelujah. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 6, verses 3 through 15. As you were, John 3, verses 6 through 15. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. So, Pastor, what what is meant by the flesh? Dr. William Graham Skoji detected ten shades of the meaning of the word flesh in the Bible. He said in nine out of ten, there was no ethical or theological content. But in the tenth, which is the one that Paul mainly employs, and he does it with such significance, the definition of the flesh is this. The flesh is man's fallen nature under the power of sin. The flesh is man's fallen nature under the power of sin. It is the evil principle in our human nature. It is the traitor that lives within us. It's the enemy enemy. And it is in a league by itself and it continues to attack us within and without. The flesh, my friends, provides the tender that the devil builds his temptations upon so that they might be kindled. Paul's meaning of the flesh is not just that it is our affections and it is our lust, but he tells us that the flesh can no longer exist in us if we are Christians. But now we can no longer walk by the flesh and exist in the flesh but we must rightly walk by the Spirit. And this is what is expected from us in the eyes of God and in the eyes of an unbelieving world. We must be crucified in our flesh. 
not just slain, our flesh must be mortified. The task of any Christian is to bring shame and subjugation to their flesh, bringing death upon all of their bodily passions. And the only way that this can be accomplished is through a continual effort and trusting in God. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We got to crucify our flesh. We have to condemn it to a death sentence. We have to surrender. Dying to self is a necessary action for anyone who wants to become one with Christ. Fellowship with Christ requires crucifixion of the flesh. It is Christ who took our sins past present and future upon the cross and he has eradicated them and because of that now we should give him our whole heart we should give ourselves away because he's already bought us through his blood from the slave market and bondage that we had to Satan let us pray dear heavenly father bring to death what is earthly in us. Bring to death what is carnal in us. Bring to death that which weighs upon our heart and continually affects us to sin. Bring to death what is earthly in us, what still remains of our earthly sinful nature. Remind us, O Lord, that he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Remind us that there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of heaven is the one kind, the body which is now heavenly in its essence and gives glory to God. Bring to death in us which is carnal. Remind us that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Keep upon our hearts and minds that the Spirit gives life and that the flesh is no help at all. Bring to death in us the weight that affixes us to sin. Remind us, O oh Lord, that this light momentary affliction called life is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Let us realize that therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that we should be compelled to lay aside every weight, every sin, everything that clings so closely to us and wants to daunt our run as we run this race with endurance that has been set before us. Let us keep our hearts and minds focused on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, let us run away from the arms of sin and into the arms of Jesus. Let us not embrace sin, but Lord, let us embrace righteousness. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Every since we entered into
the first verse of chapter 3, the theme that is continuing is the importance of us recognizing, and this is a universal statement. You must be born again. We see here as John enters into verse 6, he shows us that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John is trying to make sure that we understand that like generates like. Flesh generates flesh. Spirit generates spirit. He wants us to recognize that there's a inherent sinful nature in us that refers to our human nature. That this flesh uh, comes natural, it comes through the human birth. And everyone who belongs to this earthly family, to this humanity, are born into the flesh, but they are not born into the family of God. Only the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. John 3, 6 again says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I want you to look at your Bibles here and look at the difference here. There's a capitalization on the first spirit here that tells us that he's speaking of God, God's Holy Spirit. This is what's going to produce a new nature, a spirit-driven nature in us. This is what's going to change us from the sphere that we now live in to the sphere of the divine things. John 4, 24 says it this way, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This little short phrase, God is spirit, means that God is not made up of any physical matter. He does not have a material body, but he has a holy existence. And it is where everyone will come from that is being born from above. He is not confined to worship in one place. He can be here with us, present in Indianapolis, and just as present in Kokomo. He is perceived by our bodily senses even if we don't see him. He has the power and he has done it to bring the whole universe into existence. He is a spirit. We are not to make him into a form of an idol to look like the other gods from the other nations. John wants to contrast for us the difference between flesh and spirit that it's a difference between the lower and the higher. It's not the difference between the lower and the higher aspects of human nature, but it's the distinction of being one who belongs to God and one who doesn't. The seventh, that's rather the second occurrence of the word spirit here, you see is lowercase. And it tells us for us to change to that godless spirit, it's going to take more than just turning over a new leaf. It's going to take us adopting a, a new nature. For us to experience this new birth, for us to become children of the eternal God, we must vanquish this flesh. John 1.14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know how much of this Nicodemus could have absorbed in their short meeting. I know that Nicodemus hadn't had the advantages we had of reading the prologue that comes with John in the first chapter. But Jesus holds him accountable here that he should have a grasp of the utterness of God, that there's a difference and a distinct distance between human beings and God, and that he should understand that like produces like. Do you gather oranges from fig trees? 
can you get salt water from a well? Like produces like. So Nicodemus shouldn't be surprised, but Jesus keeps pushing this challenge to him. And now when he goes to verse 7, he makes this you plural. You must be born again. Look what he says. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Again, a trans, as a transition here from verse 6 to here, where he's speaking in the singular you, but now he's speaking in the plural you. He's making sure that John understands that everyone who comes to Christ must go through this same process. He's generalizing that all who come from the Father to me must be born again. He's speaking to Nicodemus there uh, singularly, but he's also speaking to those in the Sanhedrin that's behind him. So he could understand that this is something that has to be uh, given to the whole human race. We have been born once of the flesh. We must be born again from above if we're coming to Jesus. And really, he takes up Nicodemus here on something that Nicodemus said back in verse 2 when he said, we know that you or a teacher who comes from God. So now he starts to address him in that same understanding. Well, you need, you need to also know this, that you must be born again. Now he gives him an example. I don't know if it's because of the confused look upon his face or, you know, the fact that Jesus uh, loves to throw aside a parable whenever he's teaching to make sure you understand it a little bit better. Look what he says. The wind blows, I'm at verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone. Think about the it's exclusive there, or for everyone who is born of the Spirit. Two words here, ruah and puma. One Hebrew for wind and spirit, the other Greek for wind and spirit. You see here, he's saying, Nicodemus, you hear the sound and see the effects of the wind. There is the wind, as it blows, you hear the sound, you see the sway of the grasses, you see the clouds scuttling by, and sometimes you see incredible windstorms, but still you don't understand, nor, you, nor do you have the ability to control it. He wants him to understand the same thing happens with the Spirit of God. We can neither control him, and we do not totally understand him but we can witness his effects on our lives. We can recognize that the Spirit works in our heart and that that's undeniable and unmistakable. And all of it is relevant to this new birth. He's building an analogy here that will bring Nicodemus in. That this same Transition happens with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Look at Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Give you a minute to turn there. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle, I will sprinkle clear water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a what? New heart and a new spirit. So this is not, this is not some mere uh, fix-up job here. This is a total renovation of the person. A new heart, a new spirit. I will put within you and in any renovation, you put new stuff in, you take old stuff out. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. One of the few times you will see flesh used in a, in a manner that's neuter, that is uh, not negative. And I will put my spirit, capital S, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, a, and be careful to obey my rules. Just stop right there. Do you understand that it's impossible to obey the rules and the laws and the commandments of God operating in your spirit? You must be born again. There has to be a transition. And this really gives us, there's an illusion here that goes all the way to Ezekiel 37. You're already closed. Go to Ezekiel 37, 7 through 10. Ezekiel 37, 7 to 10. So I prophesied as I was commanded. This, this is the dry bones, right? And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and said to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds. Whenever he says in Scripture, the four winds, he's talking about the four directions, right? Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they might live. Stop right there. Go back to what happens in uh, Genesis. How does God pick up dirt, blow into it, and dirt becomes a what? A living soul. So I prophesied and he, as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and they lived and they stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. This is the Ruah. Everyone who is born of the Spirit, have, they will have their origin and their destiny coming from an unseen God. First John, as you were, John 1, 11 through 13. John 1, 11 through 13. John's going to show us this distinction once again. Personal pronoun, he refers to Jesus. Jesus came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Look at the tie between receiving Christ and believing Christ. You got to do both of those, okay? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're not born children of God who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born from above. You must be born again from above. You must belong to two churches. You have to belong to the visible church that you're sitting in, and you have to belong to the invisible church. You have to have two memberships to be a Christian. This is undeniable. And it's really, I don't, it's just, I don't mean to judge you. It's undeniable that Nicholas or Nicodemus didn't catch this. After, because we're talking about someone here who has put in years of study. You know, there are obligations in leadership to, to keep your hand on the plow, to be willing to take the time that you would do other things and put that time into learning more about the one you're serving so you can tell the people that you're serving more about the one they're serving. And I think this really leads to the exchange of questions that happens in verses 9 through 10 in this uh, third chapter. John 3, 9 through 10. 
Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? I mean, can't you hear the frustration in his voice? How can these things be? Jesus doesn't even modulate. He sounds the same. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Nicodemus is going ballistic. He doesn't recognize how this could happen. He understands he's taught for years. He understood that there were conditions on the entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but they were cast always before him in the understanding of obedience to the law, devotion to God, submitting happily to his will. But now he's facing a condition that uh, is a term he's never heard before, that there is an absolute requirement that all of that is negated if you have not been born again and you had not been born again from above and you have not been born again from above by the Spirit. And he's still skeptical. Just look at what you can feel. it. He is still skeptical because he is still, his judgment is still clouded. But here, again, Jesus holds him accountable. And I tell you, Jesus holds all of us who have the privilege to preach and teach accountable for what you should know. That's an orthodoxy to what we believe. And you should know, and if you don't know, you should Work harder to know more, even if you have to look at it time and time and time again and plead with the Lord, the Lord, to give me the right understanding and give me the ability in my humility, if I misspeak, to come back quickly and say, hey, I misspoke about this. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, here you are, Nick. Reverend, doctor, rabbi, the teacher of Israel, and you don't know or understand these things. It's amazing to him. Look at John 3 and 11. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now watch the plurals here. Truly, truly, I say to you. We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. We speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen, we know. That plural you has now become we. And, and there's no way, I think, here that you can come up with the understanding that he's talking about the disciples. Because we just picked the disciples in chapter 1. But he's speaking again in the understanding of that Trinitarian knowledge and that he's speaking back to what he started, or Nicodemus started in verse 2, to make sure you understand that all Everyone has the understanding this way. We don't have separate understandings. We have to be under one understanding. And he tells them that this is a pilgrimage that only comes as you have been born again. We see here the bottom line, it wasn't Nicodemus felt his failure of his intellect, but really a failure of his faith a failure of his insight, a failure to believe. Jesus clearly says, you do not believe our testimony. You have not accepted who I am. So he's responsible for that failure to believe. And that that is reprehensible. That it betrays Jesus for who he is. There has to be an appreciation that we have for the Son of God by all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. If Jesus says at least three times in the gospel, if you can't believe me, believe the works. 
And he takes him in verse 12 and deals with him deeper when it comes to his unbelief. Look what he says in John 3:12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says time and time again throughout the New Testament, if you're faithful over little, you'll be faithful over much. If you can't understand the earthly things that I'm telling you, and I would include being born again, even being born from above, are earthly things because they're happening on earth. They're being negotiated, and the capacity comes from above, from a holy God. But this is the entry point on earth coming to Jesus because of our faith in him. If you can't get to that baseline level, why would I ever talk to you about heavenly things? Do you understand that the greatest hindrance to your faith is yourself? That he's willing to take you as far as you believe in him? Why it is so dangerous to limit God, to try to put him in a box, to minimize his power, to think, okay, that's not important to God. God sees everything. Well, you know, I'm going to look at signs. Uh, have you ever heard of omniscient? He's all signs. You can't separate God from signs. God gave us signs. Now, we're going to tell them how it works. Makes no sense. Before he shows us the splendors of his consummated kingdom that is operating right now, what does Matthew chapter 6 tell us about the Lord's Prayer? On, in heaven, we want, to, we want things to be on earth as it is in heaven. So it's already operating. And I would say that God's kingdom, even as it's being thwarted, operates now. Presently. Even though we fight terribly against it. John wants us to understand in verses 13 to 15. That if we're going to obtain eternal life, we must be born again. And we must understand that that comes through seeing our Lord high and lifted up. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of God. Again, Jesus speaks authoritatively when it comes to heavenly things. This is a heavenly thing. Yes. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Jesus started off where? In heaven. And at the end of his ministry, he goes back to heaven. Proverbs 30 and 4 says this, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Don't we know that God knows the end from the, he knows the, end from the beginning, right? Because he established it. He ordained it. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. You see, Jesus is saying, we've got, you've got to get over this front line understanding, this base elementary understanding of who I am before you will ever see those heavenly things. Before you could ever 
uh, deal with what God wants to reveal to you further. And then 14 really gives us a central basis of if this doesn't happen, you won't be born again. If you can't see verse 14 for what it is and what it accomplishes, you won't be born again. It's, I think it's so much emphasis here he's trying to make sure we get. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Go to Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I'll give you a minute to get there. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I don't know how many times we see in the Old Testament that we see the people of God complain about their menu. And I don't know how many times we see in the Old Testament that God tries to make sure we understand clearly he's not all about you complaining. It's about thanksgiving. Well, there are going to be consequences. Look at Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we, now, this is exactly the way people are. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Well, then the first part of that is a lie. Because there is food. You just don't like it. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bidden when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the bronze serpent we recognize in that area they were in was copper. So we know that this is a copper servant, uh, serpent. And we also recognize that that copper represents the blood of Christ. And they had started to take these serpents in the time of King Hezekiah. And they had started to worship it and make it an idol. So that had to be taken down. So now... We see the bronze snake on the pole that gives new physical life to the children of Israel if they're bit during this plague, if they would look up and cast their gaze upon the serpent that is being lifted up that represents Christ who will be lifted up on a cross later. The connection here is unbelievable. Moses lifts up the snake the same way the Son of Man will be lifted, lifted up. We see here that Christ is our exalted sin bearer. Turn to Isaiah 52, 13. We really need to see Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. This is a long passage, but I think it's an incredible blessing because it shows you here the Holy One can bless his sinful people, that the promises of God are true to them, that Jesus Christ represents this suffering servant uh, who removes the guilt from God's 
people because of his sacrifice. Uh, the way to keep up with who you're uh, dealing with here is just look at the pronouns, understanding that I refers to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. When it speaks of the servant, it's speaking of Jesus. When it speaks of the servant's disciples, it's speaking of those of us who trust in God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human symbolism, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Here, the prophet is telling us that Jesus is beaten to beyond recognition, but that his blood will sprinkle on many nations. Then he tells you, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they will see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. They won't see it now. They won't understand it now. But when they see him high and lifted up, they will recognize their wrong ways. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Is that an apt description of what we recognize? He came to his own, and his own rejected him? Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has borne our griefs. He is the solution to our sinful nature. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, now he's, you got to understand what he's doing here, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He's telling us here, the prophet, everything that happened to him wasn't because of him. It was because of us. He took on all of this that we might be healed. And then he shows us in our flesh and nature, all we like sheep have gone astray. We didn't appreciate it. We turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he didn't open his mouth. So what do you got to complain about? Do you see why God has such a problem with complaining? Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep, that is, before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, so he was innocent. And, for, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of, Lydon, of the living, stricken for our transgressions of my people. And it takes us right into the Gospels, right? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You know, the tomb, right? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So did we do all this? Well, look what the Isaiah tells us. 
yet it was the will of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Whose guilt is that? Our guilt. He shall see his offspring because he will rise again and he will see those who belong to him. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accountable righteous or many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide a portion with many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the one who came down from heaven and the one who has saved us from the wrath of God and the one who is coming back for us, he who is, he who was, he who is to come. He is the one that is high and lifted up. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just what the Father taught me. John 12, 31 through 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, all people to myself. Here's the exalted one. And the thing, the thing that shows in many unbelievers' view the tragedy of the cross is his most victorious moment. Because he's revealed in who he truly is. Acts 2, 32-33. This Jesus raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted on the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Nicodemus is being challenged like never before to turn to Jesus for his new birth. The same way those Israelites in uh, the book of Numbers were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for new life. And maybe only when Nicodemus saw Jesus on the cross high and lifted up on a brutal piece of wood forsaken outside of the camp. Don't have any spiritual evidence or biblical evidence for, for this, but maybe he had a moment like that soldier and he looked up and said, surely this man was the son of God. That can only be our prayer. Because it's our prayer for everyone who does not believe that they see Jesus high and lifted up. You know, Isaiah talked to us about him being high and lifted up in chapter 6 when he sees a vision of him there. But for us to recognize that everyone who believes, this is verse 15, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. John 6 and 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So the question becomes this morning to those of us who are present in the sanctuary, those of us who are watching this 
live on Facebook and Zoom. Have we come to the point that we have seen Jesus for what he truly is? Have we seen him high and lifted up? Has his gospel shown us, even in the time, the, the turbulent times that we're dealing with right now, that he has still provided for us and protected us? Do we not see that even though it has affected many of our lives and the lives of many of our loved ones, that God, you can clearly see God's hand of protection and provision upon us. That he's high and lifted up over a pandemic, over anything that's below him. Everything is at his feet. You know, this should be the greatest time of evangelism and an end gathering because we've seen every single thing that we believe would sustain us fail. Everybody that we've ever had confidence in uh, from whether it's a judicial or an elected office, fail. Every industry that we thought was untouchable, fail. But we've had one thing that has not been shaken even though they have tried to shake it, you know, they try to convince us that we can't come together. Now, you can go to Walmart after you leave here, but you can't come here. The same God is going to let me go to Walmart, and I'm going to Walmart. I got to get some stuff before I get home. The same God that's going to get me to Walmart is going to bring me to 1500 West 86th Street. And if he decides that I'm not going to make any one of those destinations absent from the body is present with the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. We just thank you. Lord, let us recognize the privilege of being born again. Let us recognize the privilege of seeing you high and lifted up. Let us recognize it's a blessing that we are not still under the curse, that we're not still under the delusion, that we are not still steeped in unbelief. But Lord, we love you. We praise you. You are our every breath. And because of you, we can breathe. So thank us, O oh Lord. Thank you, O oh Lord, for all that you're doing for us, for your provision and your protection. We trust you. It's in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children say it.